after a long writing process, when everybody was kind of ready to make the record and getting tense or nervous, Adam showed up with Harder Breathe This Love and She Will Be Loved. Behind every favorite artist, song, or lyric is a story you've never heard. In Voices Behind the Music, we go much deeper than the frontman you hear on the album or the guitarist you see on stage. People from all aspects of the music industry work together to make the business what it is and are often some of the busiest but nicest, funniest, and smartest people out there. I'm Jeff Yasuda, CEO at Feed Media Group, the creators behind the leading B2B music licensing platform. Join me as I sit down with some of my favorite voices behind the music to hear their insider stories about what makes the music industry so exciting. Today I'm here with the one and only Dave Boxenbaum, music industry veteran, operator, and renaissance man. Dave is currently working on a roll-up in the music recording sector that I hope he can talk about later on. But Dave was, for about 13 years or so, was uh, he started, co-founded a very well-known label, A&M Octone Records, which he sold to Universal Music Group in 2013, with several platinum-selling and notable artists, including Hollywood Undead, Flyleaf, and of course, the one and only Maroon 5. Dave is an entrepreneur in residence at NYU and in his spare time is a mentor and board member at Defy Ventures, where he helps currently and formerly incarcerated men, women, and youth get back on their feet through the creation of legal businesses this time and with their career development. By night, he is a manager of a band and a filmmaker, which leads me to the question, what doesn't Dave Boxenbaum do? But most importantly, he's a family man, a mensch, and a dear friend. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Well, after that intro, it's only downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> well, for starters, um, what are you working on right now? Tell us, or can you can you say? Yeah, no, I, I can talk about it. So my main thing, which is starting to really come together, is rolling up Pro Audio Technology Company. So that's a technology I choose to make and perform music. So a roll-up is when you buy several companies that do something very similar to get economies of scale. So the idea is the business grows without the cost growing in parallel. So for instance, if you have three different companies, they have three different CFOs. You put the three companies together, you still don't need three CFOs, you only need one CFO. So a roll-up is a way to achieve kind of growth and profitability that companies could not easily get there on their own. Let's go back to your days at A&M Octone. How hard is it to discover an artist, right? Is it one in 20? Is it one in 100? So put it this way, in the history of Octone, it started off as, you know, our batting average was about 200. In baseball, you'd be in the minor leagues. In the record business, that's obscenely high. That means four out of five times you fail, and you tend to fail absolutely. It's like a needle in a haystack if the haystacks covered North America. So keep in mind, we started Octone. There was no MP3s. There was no streaming. There was no YouTube. There was no SoundCloud. Literally, it was all the human network. If we talk about, like, how did we find Maroon 5? Well, first of all, they weren't called Maroon 5 then. They were called Kara's Flowers. I love this story. And let's get pretty detailed here because... I don't think 
people appreciate the level of detailed scrutiny, the relationship building, the scouring. There's a lot of luck combined with sheer belief. Most people don't appreciate. And I think in your situation in particular, as a COO, you know, and co-founder of AM Octone, you know, not only did you do the ANR, the artisan repertoire, which is when someone goes out and actually finds a great artist. You put together the band, you did all the hard work, you got the sound just right, but you also ran the business. You handled finance, you handled legal, you handled accounting, et cetera, et cetera. Let's just touch that for a second, because most people who are in the music business started as college interns and then became assistants and worked their way up. I was very lucky. I was very late to the music business. I, I went to business school, I worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers doing strategy consulting for entertainment and media companies. Now there, I did a lot of work for Universal Music and said, wow, I think there's a lot of opportunity. And I, my best friend from college is executive at Columbia, and we partnered up and we brought in a colleague who was from Columbia as our third partner. But the, ironically, originally, I was going to be kind of the business guy, and my partner was going to be the creative guy. And of course, like any small business, we ended up getting in, heavily involved in all of it. So even where on paper, I wasn't qualified to do any A&R. I had really good ears. I had strong opinions, which are half the battle of A&R, if not more. Sure. So what happened was we had, we had managed to raise the money, get our joint venture distribution in place with no artists. We had no artists signed. And we had a good team, but it wasn't like we had been running labels. My partner was a vice president at Columbia. My other partner was like a senior director. But we found the right people to invest and started this label, no artists. And so everybody assumes that we're going to screw up our first artist. So, sure. you know, we're, we're begging people to return our calls and we'll meet with and talk to anybody at this point. And so a former colleague of my partners at Columbia had a brother who was an aspiring musician, an aspiring A&R guy. And so we're like, oh, let's, let's meet him. And remember, this is before their MP3s or even really thumb drive. So he brings in a, a burned CD. He burns some songs onto a CD, and he did what's called a blind reel, which just says, like, band A, band B, band C. We listened to the reel, and, you know, somebody were like, ah, I don't know about this. And then all of a sudden, we heard the demo for Sunday Morning, which was an early Maroon 5 song. And remember, just like band C, so I didn't know the name it looked like, so I heard it, and I just assumed he was black. I'm like, cool, it's like a Terrence Trent Darby pop rock right. thing. And I was a huge Terrence Trent Darby fan, so I'm like, this is really cool. <laughs> This is, oh, that guy was as talented as Prince. He just went crazy <laughs> first. And so we said, what's the deal with this group? It's like, oh, they're called Carrots Flowers. They're managed right. by my manager, a guy named Jordan Feltz. I'm like, oh, can you introduce us? So we go in for a meeting and we're talking about it. And he's like, blah, 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 Adam Levine. It's like, Adam Levine's like, oh yeah, they're a bunch of white kids from Beverly Hills. I'm like, well, that's surprising. So it wasn't long before the Grammys in 2001, and we were going out there, and coincidentally, they were playing a show at the Viper Room. It was a Friday night of the Grammys. Might have been 75 people in the room. Within about 30 seconds, one of my partners and myself were texting each other, like, done. We're signing them. Keep in mind, every label had passed on the group. Not yeah. because they weren't good, but the industry, and I understand why, the industry wants to be able to put you in a box because... If they can put you in a box and it's a box they know, then they can market it. 
And keep yeah. in mind that in 2001, rock music was still big, but it had gotten very heavy. The late 90s, it was, you know, Gin Blossoms and Smash Mouth and Third Eye Blind. Earl Jam, yeah. yeah. But even Pathak, like post-Grunge, had actually gotten popular. And then, mm-hmm. but then in the early 2000s, it swung heavy and alternative rock then became Stain and Limp Bizkit and System of a Down and Foo mm-hmm. Fighters. And so people like, heard, heard at the time, Carrot Flowers, are like, they're really good, but they're not really heavy enough to be a rock band and they hadn't written any of the big songs yet. So they're not a rock act. They're not a pop act yet. What are, what are they? They're power pop. Yeah. They are, well, yeah, all, you know, alternative pop. First blue-eyed soul rock band, you know, which, by the way, we didn't come up with that name. One of the press <laughs> did. We, of course, stole that headline. But, you know, I, I always analogize to scouting an artist to if you're a professional, like, baseball scout. You know, when you're looking at some high school baseball prospect, it's not how good are they today. It's how good are they going to be in six months or a year or two years from now. And right. are they good at the things you can't fix? So, like, you can't teach someone to have great hand-eye coordination. You can't teach someone to be fast. You know, you can teach them how to hit a curveball. You can coach them on this and that. And with Maroon 5, the thing that wasn't quite there yet were the songs. But we knew that that was actually the easiest thing to work on because if they ultimately couldn't get there on their own, we can bring in people to help. But the things that they had that you couldn't create was Adam was a star. And stars, you can polish a star, but you can't create a star. You know, he had a voice that was like a gift from God. You just can't learn how to sing like that. And they were all great musicians. They had a really different sound. And, you know, there were some, you know, they're only a four piece, like, you know, because Adam's playing guitar full time. So they brought on James so Adam could could be freed up to be more of a front man. But when we saw them, we're like, you know, an artist that doesn't fit into one box has the ability to fit into all of them. When we signed them, we're like, you guys are great. The songs aren't there. You got to go write. And we didn't tell them what to write other than it said something up-tempo that can really open a record. Because we heard Sunday morning, they're like, that could be a single, but it's not a first single. It's probably not even a second single. And to make a long story short, after a long writing process, when everybody was kind of ready to make the record and getting tense or nervous, Adam showed up with Harder Breathe This Love and She Will Be Loved. So you got to keep in mind, we saw the band our big dream for them, where they're going to be this L.A. seamster strokes meets Jamiroquai. Like, <laughs> like their, their sound was a little lower five garage here strokes, but Adam had that voice. And then when they delivered these songs, we're like, wow, these are amazing. This is not a cool seamster artist. These are big pop songs. And so we're like, we have to rethink our entire plan. But the point is, we didn't make them what they are. All we did... And this is what I always assume with every artist. I'm the first person that says, you know, there are things that you do that are great. Let's do more of that. You know, there are things that, let's face it, you don't do well. Let's either fix them or stop doing those things. Tell me about maybe a story when you provided honest, perhaps too honest feedback, and it just went to hell. So I'm not going to name names because she's now a very big relatively big star we were seeing a a female singer showcase for us and you know actually good singer but it was really early candidly we're doing as a favor to somebody else but you know we're going to give all of our attention all of our time so 
you know, we went to see the showcase and it was definitely a, a work in progress. She called us saying, oh, what'd you think? Like, oh, she wants feedback. Okay. I'm like, this is what we like. This is what we think you need to work on. And one of the things you're working on were the songs. Like her songs were, she was a very good lyricist, but she had really no choruses, no melodies, no hooks. And that's really critical for a mainstream artist. You need a hook. It's usually the chorus doesn't necessarily need, need to be the chorus, but you need something that, that earworm that's going to get in people's heads. And her response was, well, that's your opinion. I'm like, you're right. It is our opinion. And we get paid to give it. And so we're like, <laughs> I wish you luck. And ironically, this artist ended up getting signed by one of the majors. And a friend of mine was her A&R person. And guess what? He's like, you don't have the songs. And the big song ended up being a co-write with another songwriter, which is what we would have recommended. But sometimes in life, and it's true in everything, not just music, sometimes you have to come to realize something on your own. And so clearly she wasn't ready yet to accept that her songs weren't ready. You know, and that said to us, she's not ready to work with us because if she had said, I totally agree, what should I do? Okay, let us help you. Because even if we didn't sign her right away, We'd be happy to help her because, A, it's a karma thing, but also, B, you know, if we put her with a songwriter or a producer or another musician and something good comes of it, ideally she says, hey, those guys recommended this. I like how it came out. Maybe I should do more things with them. No, I, I hear you. Many times I hear, you know, great labels, great managers, you know, are oftentimes the behind the scenes person. Right. But being behind the scenes, you've probably have seen some pretty crazy stuff. Um, <laughs> can you give me one something behind the scenes of just something blowing your mind? Maybe it was backstage. Maybe it was before a show. I'll tell you the, the time that I, when I really realized how big Maroon 5 was. One of the interesting things about Maroon 5 was they were very early on embraced by the black community, including very big black artists. Because, wow. because they still, and I still think of them as a rock band that writes pop songs. And I think a lot, I think fans of, fans of other genre want to like artists of other genres, but they need to relate to it. And I think a lot of black artists and black fans could relate to Maroon 5 because of kind of the soul aspect to it, yeah. you know? And so right as they were breaking, probably 2003, 2004, they were playing the Clive Davis Grammy party. And, oh, wow. Okay. And which was pretty big unto itself. But I was with them and we were walking kind of, we weren't even walking on the stage, we were kind of wandering around. And Diddy walks up to him, and I am not joking, bows at their feet. He's like, <laughs> he, he's like, just, wow. in essence, he's like, I'm just a huge fan and I have such respect for you. Wow. I, I was like, holy crap. And he was so cool about it. It was just like, he was just a fan. You know, he's like, all he wanted to do was just say, guys, I love what you're doing. It's so cool. And then an hour later, because at the Clyde party, you have like dinner and then a bunch of artists perform. I normally would get like the worst table in the back because I'm just like an, like an executive and not even, you know, the talent and the manager get up front. But the publicist ran the party and I was friends with all the publicists. And, I'm, and so they give out the seating assignments. And I'm like, where am I seating? And they show me my crappy table. Like, you know, go sit at this table. No one that's at that table is going to show up. And so designated to sit at my table were Kevin Bacon, Kira Swedgwick, John Mayer, Reese Witherspoon, 
Ryan Philippe, Beyonce, and Jay-Z. <laughs> the only ones that didn't show up were Reese Witherspoon and Ryan Philippe. So fast forward to the show started, the band started playing, and everybody, most everybody was there at the table, a lot of it was there. And Maroon starts playing, and these two people kind of, you know, the lights are down, they, you know, like in the movie theater, you kind of walk with your heads down, you don't want to bother me. <laughs> these two people kind of scurry in and sit down next to me, and literally this close to me, Beyonce. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, I looked at her, and first I'm shocked at Beyonce. And without me saying, she's like, as if she was apologizing, because this was when Jay-Z was still running Island Def Jam. It's like, well, Jay was hosting a dinner across town, but we didn't want to miss Maroon 5. And so they, wow. like, hustled over. I'm like, oh, my God. It's just, <laughs> it's just nuts, you know? That is an awesome story. So, Box, we're running out of time here, but let me just – a couple rapid-fire questions sure. to put you on your feet. What was your first album that you purchased? I'm going to say Parallel Lines by Blondie, I think. Wow. Okay. This is the hardest question ever, but what was your favorite concert? Oh, that is an easy answer because of the situation. I saw Rage Against the Machine in 1992 at Wetlands in New York, which was their first show ever in, in New York. And there were might have been 50 people in the venue. And what? Yes. It, it, like most of the label didn't mean show up for it. I'm not even sure the show is for, but keep in mind that rap rock really didn't exist. And my business partner from Octon at the time was working at Columbia. And he's like, I want to play you this new artist that the guy who signed Pearl Jam signed. And he played me Rage Against the Machine. And I'm like, the closest thing that kind of came to my head was like, it's kind of like public enemy, you know, like heavier rap. Like, is this like, some sort of gangster rap thing on my own. It's like, and he's like, I have no idea what it is, but Michael Goldstone signed it and he's got great ears and they're playing tonight and let's go see it. And wow. I don't know if you've ever seen Rage Machine, but they're an amazing live act. They were that good from day one. And literally, I, first time in my life, I got into mosh pit. I mean, I just, yeah. I was overcome <laughs> by the music. And, and fortunately, you are a big guy, yes. so and it was, you know you own that pit. Well, and also there were so <laughs> few people there; the mosh pit wasn't that crowded, and it was like one of those like friendly mosh pits. So we're moshing, and I actually dropped my keys. Some guy was like, "Dude, I think you dropped your <laughs> keys." So it was, you know, it, it, and I've seen Rage several times since, and it, oh, they're great. It was just, you know, I and actually I'll make my other one, which is more personal. So, you know, I grew up in New York and going to the garden was like, it was like going to the palace. And so the first time Maroon 5 played at the garden, they were on the bill for Jingle Ball, which is a big radio festival. They're one of like 20 artists. So it wasn't like they were headlining it. So I, I you know, it'd be cool to see Maroon 5 and Massacre Garden. So they came on, they were by far not the headliners. So I figured, you know, the crowd might pay attention to them. And they started playing and the crowd was singing every word to every song. I was like, <laughs> I, I just, uh, that was the, you know, them winning a Grammy and me getting thanks for stage was amazing. That was insane. That was just, I don't know, I don't have a lot of words for it. 
No, well, that is, I think, a great way to end the show. Box, you are the merging between personal, professional, and just overall greatness in everything mm -hmm. you touch. Once again, we are here today with the one and only Dave Boxenbaum, a.k.a. Box. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Jeff. All right, buddy. Catch you soon. Thanks for listening to Voices Behind the Music, a Growth Network podcast production presented by Feed Media Group. We're on a mission to make it easy, fast, and legal for businesses to use music to power the most engaging customer experiences. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours and learn more about us at feedmediagroup.com.